Welcome back to All Outdoors Photography Podcast, where we share experiences out in the field and educate others through landscapes, wildlife, macro, and more with photographers from around the world. In today's episode, we have Charles Needle on the show. Welcome, Charles. Welcome. Thank you. So you're an award, award-winning fine art photographer based out of Colorado uh, who focuses on macro and tiny landscapes. Uh, to start off this conversation, uh, in your own words, what is the difference between looking and seeing? Oh, that's a very good question. I really believe that a photographer needs to learn how to see deeply or see deeply in new ways. So to me, looking is sort of the first initial way that I would approach a subject. You know, if something catches my eye, so I'm really just more or less looking, primarily using just my eye and my mind. But when I'm really seeing, I might be involving my heart as well as my mind and my eye. So it's a way of sort of seeing deeper in my view. Hmm. That's really different. So, Never heard that before. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just kind of a different way, I guess, of explaining it. <laughs> more yeah. philosophical, maybe. Yeah, no, no worries. Yeah. So you're basically shooting from the heart, I guess. Like you're, I guess you're, you mean like the emotional reaction to the scene in front of you? Yes. So my emotional reaction, trying to express myself uh, through the, the camera as far as what I'm seeing and how I'm feeling and trying to translate that vision to the viewer. So uh, yeah, it gets a little deeper than just kind of documentary type work. Right, right. So, so how does one like, I guess, elevate themselves to that, like how they take that next step to really uh, see the landscape or the environment in front of them and then capture it on camera? It's really not easy. Um, I always say to my workshop students, you know, photography is a performance art and it's just like dance, music, you know, whatever, painting, it, it takes a lot of practice. So just showing up, being there, uh, quieting yourself, you know, a lot of times, I will just approach a scene without a camera at all at first and then eventually look and see what's calling to me and pick up the camera at that point. And of course, for me, uh, back in the days of film, I was trained to work with on a tripod most of the time. So the tripod really, in a way, is kind of a metaphor, I think, for grounding us and forcing us to sort of slow down and really notice things. And especially if you're doing close-ups, which is something kind of near and dear to my heart, you really do sort of need to slow down. You don't always need to be on a tripod by any means, but it's a great approach to a subject if you've got the time and and the right mental attitude <laughs> to approach a subject. It's helpful to, to use a tripod in, in my view. Yeah, for sure. And what was kind of the moment your photography approach switched from the you know beginner mentality of just shooting everything possible to slowing down yeah kind of it's hard to really pinpoint a moment uh, that's another good question I, i'd say just over time it, it just sort of evolved um, i got into photography in in a, sort of a, a different way and so maybe that's why i guess i try and approach my subjects deeper i had uh, chronic fatigue syndrome totally fine now um, but photography became like a form of therapy for me and recovery from that illness and so literally, like when I couldn't travel to the Grand Canyon or, you know, places far and wide, I just got out my camera and went in the backyard and on my hands and knees discovered, you know, there was beauty through the lens. So that's, I think, where in a way maybe that was the turning point for me when I realized, hey, this is a vehicle for, you know, 
not feeling pain, letting go, you know, just uh, being in the moment. Yeah, definitely. It, it, I feel like it's tough for a lot of people because they like to see the big, grand, you know, the vistas and the landscapes in front of them. And it's like, you're right where it is. There's, there's so much you can see when you really break it down to like this little square footage of land. There's so many photographs potentially in that space too. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, one of the exercises I've done with students is take them to a junkyard, you know, oh, wow. <laughs> I mean, there is beauty in a junkyard, believe it or not. Uh, so yeah. And there really is a photo everywhere you are. Um, one of my huge uh, sources of inspiration and mentors for me is Freeman Patterson. He's a Canadian photographer, lives in New Brunswick, still uh, in his 80s is going strong and he always did an exercise with people where he would ask them to you know keep the camera by your bed or these days I guess it could be your phone and before you ever get out of bed like force yourself to make 10 photos you know wow. <laughs> with the point oh being you know a photo wherever you are of course if nature's calling you can do that first but uh, it's a really <laughs> interesting way of approaching the world and seeing differently now, do you do that every morning, Charles? Or? <laughs> no, I, I do not. Okay. Um, All right. Well, but uh, it's great to try every once in a while. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. And I want to I want to circle back to something you said um, about your workshops. So you you take students to junkyards. So that's interesting. Your work is definitely very nature centric, but you seem to, you know, kind of do some shooting in urban areas. So I think that's super cool. Sometimes. Right, yes, and a lot of times if the weather's not cooperating or things like that, um, it's an interesting exercise. I don't do it often, but it is a place that sometimes I will take people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's definitely a different venue mm -hmm. for that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then for kind of your flower stuff too, I mean, are you are you searching for those flowers or are you going to botanical gardens or what, a lot of times, where do you go for that? Yes, a lot of times it is in a botanical garden uh, or, you know, like I've done workshops in Europe where I've, I had a, a amazing opportunity to be able to photograph in Monet's garden in France with private access oh for more than 20 years. I uh, have been taking groups in there to do that. And that's just a really special experience to be in there without any tourists. And so gardens like that, that are public, but then I really seek out private gardens as well. Uh, I'll be doing a workshop of English gardens next year and a lot of them being private. And so I love anywhere where there are flowers. I've been known to just go to Trader Joe's, you know, and get a, a bouquet of flowers and work with that on the kitchen table um, in the winter. So yeah, it's, it's a great, I just love macro because, you know, there's just infinite possibilities and there are, in, in my opinion, there's just so many ways to express yourself with macro because you can get more abstract and a little bit less literal with the, your subject. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I remember reading on your website, I, th I think you had a, like in your house, like a little macro setup or a studio, like tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah. So, uh, I, have a, a studio in my basement right now but before moving to Colorado I had a backyard when I lived back in Georgia I'm from Atlanta originally trying to lose the accent but anyway <laughs> um, it comes in every once in a while but uh, in Georgia I had a whole backyard with uh, a garden and a waterfall and I had people come and we did you know classes and so forth there I'm hoping to do something like that here in Colorado just haven't been here long enough to get all of that set up but 
I just love playing with uh, things like glass and mylar and, and water drops and, um, you know, reflections of things and just not necessarily flowers all the time. Uh, but I do, flowers are a subject that really I'm drawn to most of the time. Um, and so, but I think what's great is it trains your eye to see, no matter, you know, if you're a portrait photographer, landscape photographer, if you do, you know, sports or whatever it is, architecture, just doing macro and forcing yourself to more see deeper and in a little bit more abstract way, I think is going to make you a better photographer no matter what you shoot. So uh, that's kind of why I do what I do as well in the teaching aspect of it especially. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so we talked a little bit about the philosophical approach of your work, but um, let's talk about a little bit about the uh, the literal sense. So like what exactly are you looking for with flowers and photographing them? I, I really like to pick flowers that are at least maybe about six inches in diameter because it's so much easier to fill the frame when you have a flower that big. Um, and of course I'm drawn to vibrant color and uh, you know, you can make a beautiful photo of a plant that's kind of on its way out or, or about to die or even dead. I've seen gorgeous photos of, you know, dead flowers, but I tend to, to like ones that are in pristine condition. You know, uh, you just want to try and, and use subjects, at least for me, I, I'm drawn to ones that don't have too many aberrations uh, just so I can play around even more. But um, yeah, that's kind of what I look for. And I also like setting up in pots instead of uh, necessarily shooting uh, in a, well, in a public garden, I can't do this, but at home I have plants and flowers in pots so that that allows me to move them around. And that way I can get a really pleasing background and control the amount of depth of field and so forth. Um, so don't be too quick to plant things, <laughs> those of you who are into flower and, and uh, plant photography. Uh, what helps you exactly with like putting in a planter? Is it just to have more control over like I guess the growing process or does it like help at all with the actual photographing of it? it it's really not anything to do with either of those. It's more about just being able to move the plant or flower around so that I can have that uh, a certain distance from the subject in the background. When you're doing close-ups, you know, if you've got uh, a real shallow depth of field, if my plant behind something is real close, it's going to really show a lot of detail. Whereas if I have it 10 feet away, I can still get that color in the background, but it's going to be a lot softer and more pleasing, uh, even at a smaller aperture sometimes. So it by being able to control the distance, it's really more about the distance between the subject and the background. Um, it gives me more freedom to do that. I'm not really a gardener, so you know I'm not nurturing the plant or anything like that necessarily. I, I do give it love, but not not the way a, a hardcore gardener would. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that that makes sense. Yeah, and you can control the light of it too, and place it in certain like I guess spots where the light may be better for a photograph too. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. You ever thought about doing gardening a lot more? I thought about it, yeah, but I just love photography so much that uh, at least for now I'm I'm going to rely on others to do the planting and the gardening, but it does fascinate me and I'm trying to learn the, as best as I can names of flowers and plants. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so a lot of your imagery, it contains a, like a certain vibrancy to it and there's all these pastoral colors with it. Um, do those come out of the environment that you're shooting in or does like post-processing aid in, I guess, it's like a visual approach? 
Yeah, sometimes uh, the post-processing helps, but I really try to stay true to what I saw. Um, and, you know, occasionally I'll add a, a little bit of vibrance or contrast or, you know, things like that. But I really try to, to stay as true as I can, at least in my mind of what I saw in front of me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so when you when you get into the editor, I mean, are you, how long do you spend per image? I mean, is it really pretty much done in camera? Or? I try to get it right as much as possible in camera. Uh, but I just enjoy being in the field more than I do sitting behind the computer working on images. Um, with that being said, though, I don't know. I'd say if I had to pick an average, I'd say maybe, you know, a half hour or something with an image uh, that I really care about and want to, you know, make it look right. But I don't do a, a whole lot of post-processing and try to just get it right, like I said, in the camera as much as I can. I guess that just comes from the days of film where you kind of had to get it right, uh, especially slide film. Yeah, that, that's fair. I mean, it's it's definitely a lot better. And I feel like it just helps, like, from a photographer's standpoint, it shows that you put more time into the composition or whatever in the field, and you took more time to really flesh it out because a lot of people will just shoot and burn, as they say, and they go and edit it, and it's, like, just a lot... You know, it's just a lot more of a faster, I guess, approach to it. It's not as good as the right. results can be. Mm-hmm. Right. I think, yeah, we tend to get lazy. I mean, myself included sometimes where we just say to ourselves, oh, I'll crop that later or, you know, and so by getting it right in the camera as much as possible, it, it really can help later on. And of course, I'm always watching my histogram, making sure not to clip the highlights and things like that too, of course. Yeah. I mean, a lot of your images kind of have like a little high key approach. So I'm guessing you're really pushing the histogram to its limits with uh, exposure. Is that true? I don't do a lot of high key, uh, but I try to have detail in all of my highlights. So if I were going to really push it more, you know, the a lot of the highlights might get completely blown out. But I try try not to as a general rule. Right. Yeah. I guess a better way to say it would be like brighter. We'll say not not so yes, much high key. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. So are you using a flash um, in these situations, like for the every, macro subject? Every so often I will use fill flash, uh, but I'd say maybe that's only 5% of the time. Um, now with you know post-processing and all, we can bring detail back into shadows. I will use a reflector. I have a small 12-inch gold-silver reflector. I'm almost always using the gold side if I do use it, and I really am a big fan of using a diffuser because the diffuser you know of course is a portable cloud and really allows me to uh, soften the light if I happen to be shooting on a sunny day yeah those are good good tools to use yeah with just you know controlling the shadows a lot more and adding that little pop of lights onto your subject there for sure yeah and I do like the little LumaCube lights especially if I'm working in a studio indoors not so much outdoors Uh, those are just small little lights you know that you can used to uh, fill in shadows that way. And I also have a little flashlight that's got 34 colors built into it. Wow. <laughs> and uh, it's really fun to, you know, especially if you're just doing fine art flower photography and not trying to be literal, you can start to light the throat of a flower, for instance, if it has a throat or, you know, skim the flower with a little bit of light. And it can create some really interesting effects by doing that as well. That's really cool. That that flashlight kind of reminds me of like harkening back to the film days with those lighting gels a little bit. Yes, right. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, so yeah, so shifting gears here a little bit, um, maybe what's some other kind of gear that you'd recommend for uh, doing macro photography? Uh, let's see, I'm trying to think. Um, there is a device called a PLAMP, P-L-A-M-P, that uh, you can get that will hold a flower still in the wind if it's blowing. Um, and they they have different ones where you can either attach it to your tripod if you happen to be working on a tripod or some something nearby if it's indoors, you know, a chair or if you're outdoors, like a tree or whatever, or something that uh, allows you to basically move your camera around without moving the, the plant. If you clamp it to your tripod, you're going to move the plant at the same time as moving the, the, the flower. That's really that's really cool, yeah. And um, circling back to you mentioned the loom cubes. Um, what's your experience with those? Um, those like I believe mounts onto your hot shoe. Is that correct? Well, the one I'm referring to, you I think you could mount it on the hot shoe if you wanted, but this is just would be a handheld, and it's shaped like a cube. It even has a little uh, diffuser diffusion dome on top of it that you can pop on there to soften the light. You do have to you know control the distance at which you're holding it. If you hold it too close, it can be too strong and powerful. And it's got different brightness settings as well. Right, yeah. Does that, is it, does it work together, I guess, with like your camera or is it its own separate device? It's his own separate device. Okay. So you have to really like, you know, meter and adjust your exposure accordingly for it. Right, right. Yeah, I try to keep it as simple as I can. <laughs> <laughs> That's but true. on my website, I've got a whole page of gear listed there. Uh, there's a whole section of gear, and it has everything in my camera bag, and then some. So if anybody's interested, you can check that out. Right. And are you shooting with uh, ex exclusively like macro lenses, or do you use extension tubes? I love macro lenses. Uh, I started out with the Nikon 105, great lens, still use it. It's a great lens for portraiture too, of course. And then I sort of graduated to the 200, and I like the 200 a lot because it has a collar uh, where I can, you know, adjust, go vertical or horizontal. And it's also um, gives me more bokeh in the background or kind of that blurry kind of artistic effect in the background just gives me more working distance as well from the subject. So it's really important, you know, if you're doing like butterflies, things like that, to have a little bit longer macro lens. And I really am a big fan of adding a close-up diopter onto the front of the macro lens as opposed to necessarily using extension tubes. But I do own a set of three extension tubes, but I'm more likely uh, to use the close-up diopter because you're not losing light and the real high quality close-up filter, if you will. It's almost as if they took the front of a lens and just sliced it off and you get, uh, you know, edge to edge sharpness and it gives you greater magnification by doing that. And I like to think you can almost kind of get inside of a flower if you want to give it that sort of Georgia O'Keeffe look <laughs> and make, make your images look more O'Keeffe and a little more abstract. But that is what I've never heard of that. Is that like a, so it's literally a filter in the front of your lens or? Yes, well, it's it's a filter, yes. And it's clear, it's kind of thick. Um, and it's, I don't know, it's maybe a half an inch thick. And you can, it's on the gear section of my website, as I said, but um, Canon used to make one called the 500D close-up lens. Um, I'm not sure they make that anymore, but there is a substitute now for that that you can get. Uh, it's. I think it's called the Acromatic Plus 5 close-up lens. It's on my website on the gear section. 
um, and you can get one of those and put it on the front. And the nice thing is if you don't own a macro lens or not sure if you're going to get passionate about macro, you can get that filter and still use it on the front of a telephoto lens and it'll allow that telephoto lens to focus closer. It won't turn that telephoto into a true macro lens, but it'll allow you to focus closer. Hmm. Do you notice any like degradation in quality or sharpness when using that diopter? I do not. Uh, and a lot of times I'm working at an aperture around 5.6. Uh, you know, I'm not uh, necessarily stopping down all the way because I'm trying to just show selective focus, like the edge of a pedal sharp or something like that. And I really like, I'm a big fan of kind of that whole mush factor. <laughs> uh, I don't like necessarily to always make my images look, you know, tack sharp at F99. Um, though you wish we had F99, right, sometimes. <laughs> um, but I just am much more drawn to kind of, you know, the more blurry, abstract image. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so, like, what aperture are you using there? Like, So is it, like, as shallow as it goes or more like F8 or what? Around 5.6 is where I'll start with that close-up lens, and then I'll uh, sometimes go to 8 or 11, or but I'm rarely at like 16, you know, or 22 when I'm using that lens. You know, wide open is, is too blurry, and then, you know, stop down is too, you know, kind of right. diffraction problems yep. and all that. So yep, and it's important, I think, to always bracket your apertures. Not necessarily bracket exposures, but bracket your apertures mm. when you're doing close-up photography. You know, shoot it at every aperture there is, and you'll learn a lot when you get it, you know, into Lightroom or Bridge or whatever you're doing in your post-processing. So it's a great way to learn, too. You know, oh, if I use that aperture with, you know, at that background distance, here's kind of the way it's going to look. Right. So you use that, you'll bracket your aperture, but try to set the same exposure. You'll just stop up or stop down based on what you think well, you need. I'll be in uh, aperture priority, and I'll just ah, basically okay. you know go through my different apertures that way. Yeah, sorry, yeah. I should have probably yeah. clarified that. Yeah, no, no worries. I think that's a great strategy. I've never thought of aperture bracketing, but it's a it's a great point. Yeah, because um, so. you never know. You know, I'm sure you get you know blurry backgrounds. A lot of your images, you know, certain apertures there could be sticks back there that'll just be exactly. really annoying and. Yep, um, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, so. and I think the background's as important, sometimes more important uh, than the subject when you're shooting close up like that. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. And we're so fixated on the, what we're shooting, the subject itself, that a lot of times we neglect or forget about the background. And even, you know, using a depth of field preview button, if you have an older camera that isn't mirrorless and want to, you know, preview how much depth of field you're going to actually get in the final image, you can use that depth of field preview button. And if you aren't sure, what that button is or its function or where it is, you usually can find that in the manual of your camera if you've got it. Yeah, that's a, that's a great approach though to macro photography is using that, you know, the aperture bracketing. Um, do you ever do any like focus stacking as well? You know, I don't do a lot of that. Uh, I've seen it and I appreciate it. And I, I really love the look of it, but I haven't done a whole lot just because I tend to want things not quite as sharp. Uh, but it is a great way if you're trying to get a blurry background but then want a lot of sharp subject itself that's front of the background yeah true i guess it depends on the subject and how much depth is you know let's say in the foreground of the scene you want to capture too exactly exactly yeah, yeah how often do you do you mentioned having the images maybe have a little bit of a like a softer look um how often do you do like a soft focus uh look with you know you just switch on manual and just try and mess with that 
Yeah, yeah. I've given myself an exercise sometimes. It's funny you say that uh, to actually, you know, if you feel like you're sort of in a rut and you're bored and you're not sure, you know, what to shoot next, just set your camera at the widest aperture and put put it on manual focus and just blur or defocus that lens a little bit and walk around and look at the world that, that way. I mean, you don't want to stumble over something, uh, but it, it's an interesting way also of looking at the world. And you can shoot uh, textures and things like that to overlay with other images. And I also, a big part of my work is impressionistic photography. We haven't really touched on that yet, but I'm happy to discuss that because I'm super excited about all of the hidden potential in a camera uh, that may have in-camera multiple exposure capability. And we're not talking about HDR here. It's basically sandwiching one frame over another. So I might do like an, a flower that's sharp and in focus with one shot and then overlay in the camera a second image of that same subject that's defocused completely and not sharp. And you get a really cool, interesting effect. So I just think it's one of the most underutilized tools that's in a camera today. Not every camera has built-in multiple exposure capability, but you can certainly um, shoot it. And I've got a book that describes methods of shooting all of these things. And if you shoot it, uh, then you can combine it later if you don't have a camera that has multiple exposure capability uh, in the post-processing software. I have a free script that's available on my website that you can download, and it's a plugin basically to Photoshop where you just shoot all your frames, unlimited number of frames, like you know, 100 frames if you wanted, and then you load them into this software and just hit OK, and it merges all 100 frames into one single frame. Uh, or however many you chose. So it's very cool to uh, think about that. Um, I know that's a long-winded answer talking about soft focus, but that triggered me thinking about uh, you know what I call soft glow montage, which is where you do combine a sharp image with a blurry image to make one single image. So are you, I mean, for that montage, are you taking, is it like a, you're trying to get the background and foreground you know, different levels of focus, or are you just looking at individual pieces of the scene with that? I don't know if that's a complicated really, question. Yeah, it's really just doing one that's at a sharp focus and one that's defocused. And so it's often, you may have heard of, it's often referred to as the Orton effect, O-R-T-O-N. Mm. Oh, yeah. Uh, and you can try this with landscapes and other subjects too, of course, but with a close-up, um, I've got an image I'm thinking of in particular of like a tulip where, you know, I did, I actually broke the rule. Usually you're supposed to shoot the first frame at kind of a small aperture like f16 or whatever, and then the second one is at 2.8 or a wider aperture and defocused, but I broke the rule with this one tulip image I'm thinking about where I have the tulip sharp, at, but it's at a wide aperture, say 2.8, and focused sharply on that tulip, and then all I did second frame was to defocus even at 2.8, keeping the aperture the same, and then it made the tulip really kind of look like it's glowing. And it, you could also try, you know, negative clarity in the post-processing and get a similar look. It's not quite the same as in camera, uh, but I just, as I said, get really excited by trying this stuff in camera and see what I can get. Hmm. And what software do you use to compile all those images? I'm using just Photoshop to uh, 
work with that script and I don't think it'll work with elements if anybody has elements uh, you do have to have Photoshop and it's a free script like I said available on my website as a download it's in the resources section of my website and you just go to that resources page and it's right there that's really cool yeah I feel like it's tough to it, it's weird when you think of like a blurry image as being one to delete or just discard right but like you're taking you're basically like combining the two sharpen in focus and creating something that's quite beautiful that way too right exactly yeah. yeah and so it's a great thing you know even if you don't get off on it as much as I am you try it a few times and you might run across a situation someday where it really would be fun to, to, to work and be successful. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, so, so you mentioned uh, earlier, you said about going and visiting the Monet Garden. So like, how does Impressionism influence your work and um, how do you get started doing that? Yeah, so in a big way, Monet has influenced my work with that. Um, I, as I said, have been taking people there for over 20 years and I had a lot of opportunities during those 20 years to practice a lot of the techniques that I have in my uh, book and it's all about you know just learning how to see what's going to work first uh, things scenes that tend to have a lot of color contrast or tonal contrast work well and the perfect canvas for that if you will uh, is you know Monet's garden uh, because it was planted you know for painting so literally what I'm trying to do I guess is um, maybe I'm a frustrated painter is using my camera as a paintbrush so whether it's intentional camera movement with just you know maybe a single exposure that's I don't know half a second quarter of a second or an image that's combining you know as few as two or as many as eight or nine or ten uh, in camera sharp images just moving the camera slightly between exposures out of alignment uh, to create the look of uh, like a painting you know the the look of small brush strokes you'd be amazed the uh, masterpieces you can create and they look awesome when you print them on canvas as well so yes Monet huge influence and also of course as I mentioned earlier Freeman Patterson um, he got me really excited about a lot of the things you can do in camera, especially when it comes to multiple exposures. There's one crazy technique where you rotate and zoom uh, your telephoto lens, and with multiple exposures, it creates a spiral effect. So a uh, few of the images I submitted to you guys uh, show that. So it's really fun to try. Yeah, I never awesome. has, I never yeah. quite seen that spiral effect before, and I think one of the images uh, you shared with us is has that spiral effect on the flower, and it kind of like, like moves towards it. I'm just, I was in awe of it. I was like, that is yeah. something, that is really cool. Yeah. Yeah, I say saying California is kind of trippy some of this, but <laughs> <laughs> definitely. I was just gonna say, I think that's what makes your portfolio unique. You know, you're you're not a, you're already doing a genre that's you know less shot than others, and then on top of that, you're really experimenting. Um, I'm curious, we didn't really ask you anything about, you know, kind of how you got started. Um, so how did you discover this kind of genre of photography and, you know, really get into it? Well, as I said, it was through that illness was a lot of it. And that's what got me into macro. And at that time, I wasn't so much interested mm -hmm. in impressionism. Um, you know, it really forced me to slow down when I couldn't travel wide and see the beauty in small spaces. But then once I got stronger and better and started teaching all over the world and going especially to Monet's garden, I just started practicing and, and realizing, hey, you know, I can, my camera's a paintbrush and 
Um, as Freeman Patterson say, uh, think of your, he says, think of your camera as your dance partner, then do si do. <laughs> so I started to kind of do si do with my camera and lo and behold, you know, I got a lot of images that were not pleasing, uh, of course, and a lot of outtakes there, but Hey, it's all about just experimenting and not being afraid to make mistakes with all of our photography, whether it's impressionism or other subjects. So I just kept going with that and studied it more and more and and just became more and more excited about it and that's sort of how it all evolved so i now see that whole illness i went through gift really that got me into photography that's awesome that's awesome yeah yeah, Who knows what you'd be shooting today if it wasn't for that so <laughs> right to look at it for sure exactly yep. yeah Led, led you down this you path. Might, you might reason. be a bird nut like me. <laughs> <laughs> or just me that shoots a little bit of everything. Yeah. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that either. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I love all subjects, but mm -hmm. um, just two areas that I've really kind of dived into. Yeah, you also shoot a little bit of, it uh, looks like some wider angle landscapes um, that you shared on your portfolio. Um, how, how do those help you with learning macro and vice versa? That's a very good question. I really think of a macro image as a mini landscape and people who are terrified to do macro or, you know, they just really say, that's not my thing. I say to them, well, are you a landscape photographer? Do you like landscapes? And they say, yeah. And I'd say, well, hey, think of this as a little mini landscape. Uh, and, you know, you still have the same proportions when you look through that viewfinder. And so that makes it a little less intimidating in that way. Um, and the other beauty is you have complete control a lot of times over the light and it, we don't always have you know that sort of control when we're doing a landscape that's a very good point yeah i mean you got the landscape and if you're shooting it at like let's say sunrise or sunset you got to make sure that light's pretty great because it's going to be all over the sky or in the scene or whatever but yeah with macro it's smaller scenes so there's less control in such a way too Right. And the best day to go out and shoot macro is, you know, bright overcast light. Macro photographers in general don't want, you know, a sunny situation. So uh, it's kind of the opposite of painting. Uh, painters want sunny conditions to show uh, contrast. But with uh, the macro stuff, you can do it with the soft overcast. And if it's sunny, use a diffuser to uh, make that, you know, light more diffused and soft. Mornings are the best uh, because there's less wind. Wind can be a real enemy, of course, when you're doing close-ups. And if it is real windy, I'll just go with the wind and maybe do something that's a little more impressionistic and see what I can get that way. So uh, there's always opportunities wherever you are. You just have to be open to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, so art. I, I'm not. I know you do workshops, but are are you a full-time professional? Is that is this your full-time career it is I've been doing this awesome. for more than 20 years full-time I feel very That's very great. fortunate and uh, blessed to be able to do what I love and and actually make a living from it so yes I've been teaching and started out with backyard workshops and then I did some private lessons still do private lessons and it just grew from there started to do talks at camera clubs and um, I've had you know and other mentors along the way who encouraged me to teach and it, it does take a certain amount of patience sometimes you know <laughs> to teach but I feel like I have that and I get so excited teaching people at all skill levels whether you know I've had students that don't know an f-stop from a bus stop and <laughs> they're just 
really uh, awesome, and they want to learn so much. And I've also gotten very turned on recently by the iPhone. I love my iPhone. I've started teaching a lot with that. Um, it's a great tool for seeing the world, of course, and capturing it, and of course, all the apps that are out there for post-processing. But I think of my iPhone more than anything as a visual sketch pad. Uh, it, it's training my eye every single day to to just see the art that's in my life. You know, there's an image I had in the portfolio there of some bubbles, um, and those bubbles were just basically oil droplets uh, boiling on the pot on the stove when I was making artichokes once. So I grabbed my phone and, you know, made a really cool abstract image of that. So it trains your eye, even if you're never going to print from your phone, or which you can totally do now easily, 16 by 20s and up. Uh, with the newer iPhone, but it's a, just a great tool to train your eye more than it. That's awesome, yeah. And I, I will mention even the new iPhone has a macro lens now, which is it pretty does. crazy. Yes, yeah. uh, it's not perfect. I've played around with it a lot, but yes, it's okay. fun to be able to, to focus uh -huh. closer than ever before. Uh, and yeah. so, yeah, I've got some gorgeous uh, close-ups that I've been able to make just using nothing more than the phone. And even if it's windy, the, the shutter speed on that phone will freeze uh, something, and, and it's remarkable, the, some of the algorithms built into the, the newer phones. And I think the great thing about that, too, is it's introducing more people to macro. I mean, yes. even if you have a camera, I mean, unless you have like a fairly close focusing lens, I mean, you're never going to be able to shoot stuff like that. So it's really, right. I think it's great. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask, on your workshops, I'm sure you get a wide variety of gear. Uh, do you ever get iPhone-only photographers on there? I do. Uh, it's only in the last, I guess, couple of years, maybe, uh, that I've had people come with nothing more than a phone. I've got wow. people coming to do fall color in Colorado this fall, and yeah, they're just going to bring a phone, and, and there's not a thing wrong with it. You know, I have no judgment mm -hmm. around it. And it's so funny because, yeah. you know, a lot of times we get asked as photographers, oh, that's an amazing image. You know, like, what camera did you use? Well, it's sort of like, you know, asking a chef what oven they use to make that amazing dish or, <laughs> or bake that cake. Uh, it's, at the end of the day, not always about, you know, the, the technology. And I think today more than ever with such a huge array of choice, of what we can use sometimes it's nice to just lighten your load and dumb it down and, and go go very simple uh but with that being said you know the cameras out there are truly amazing and it's awesome i love my nikon and you know wouldn't give it up for the phone mm -hmm. yeah it's i think it ultimately comes down to control too um, right. I, I don't think you know with re resolution i think 12 megapixels is fine on the phone. I think that's great. I think it's uh, the control aspect. Absolutely. And like you mentioned, it's For like sure. using a phone as like a visual, I guess like a scrapbook in a way or um, drawing pad, as you said. It's like, it's it's a different application of it, but it's still photography at the end of the day too with it. Exactly. And it really helps train you to compose because, mm -hmm. you know, you're not having to worry as much about f-stops and shutter speeds and you're just thinking, okay, what's inside these four, you know, borders here and composing an image. So I like to think of it as a tool for that as well. Yeah, def mm -hmm. definitely. Yeah. How's it been with like teaching like the, pho the phone users on a workshop? Like how is it different compared to using like a, like a DSLR camera or something? 
Well, a lot of times the phone users are not using a tripod, which is fine. I mean, a lot of people with cameras aren't either, and that's totally fine. Um, I don't know. It's just a different style of shooting, and uh, it's a, a joy to teach someone, period, whether they're using a phone or a camera. Um, it's hard to really say if there are huge differences. You know, it's just maybe a, a little bit faster pace of shooting, you know, if you have your phone. Um, but at the same time, you know, if you've got the eye, it's awesome. There's no no problem with, with doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm sure there's iPhone photographers out there that we've never seen and just don't share their photos, and they're That's just right. around. They have yeah. it with them for convenience, and it's, you know, yeah. some high quality stuff for sure yeah, so absolutely yeah i think that's great yeah talk a little bit more about you know on on the workshops what are you really teaching um are you are you teaching how to find a subject or what composition what, what are you teaching on these workshops yes all of the above um i teach a variety of workshops some involve setups indoors um i do uh, a couple of weekend workshops in atlanta i did this past march where we brought in all kinds of toys, if you will, you know, tools to play with, glass and mylar and water drops and that, and different, you know, paperweights and shells and different objects. And so there's that type of workshop, and that's great. I love that uh, for more controlled macro photography. And then there are others where I'll take people into gardens and teach them about macro as well as impressionistic photography and even the phone stuff. Um, so it's, yeah, just helping them see helping them compose, uh, get the right you know, exposure, talk about the various techniques. A lot of times I'll demonstrate some of, especially the impressionistic techniques, the, the one of rotating and zooming, especially where you get that spiral is uh, something you really do need to sort of watch me do <laughs> before you can truly master yeah. it. Um, so yeah, it's just, we just have fun. Uh, it's a lot of different things all at once. and. Uh, a lot of times it just ends up being a form of therapy for everybody there, myself included. You know, it's just escape from all the the pressure and the worries of, of today. So I think that's another reason people do sign up for a workshop and, and to be around like-minded people as well. That's awesome. Yeah, well, we'll make sure to link all that below. You know, your gear list, your workshops, everything, because I'm sure many people will be interested. Thank you. Yeah. Of course, yeah. So when you do those workshops, are you like traveling pretty far away or is it more localized to where you live? Well, I've got some that are more local. I want to build more and uh, local workshops here in Colorado in this region. I'm, like I said, I'll be doing fall color in Colorado in October. Um, but I love taking people far and wide as well. I've done ones in Holland this past spring. I was in Holland at an amazing garden called Kukenhof in uh the Netherlands outside of Amsterdam and I had a group there and then I did uh, two groups in Tuscany in Italy and we also went to Venice and then uh, next year as I said I'll be in UK doing uh, private and public gardens of England so super excited about that as well I scouted about 20 gardens this past uh, spring slash summer and uh, and putting together a detailed itinerary for that workshop so, uh, yeah, it's kind of all over the place. I'm going to be up in Canada in a couple of weeks, the Bouchard Gardens up there. Amazing place. One of the most beautiful gardens in all of North America, opinion. 
then uh, I'll also be at Cape Cod doing private gardens there. So <laughs> it's kind of all over the map, really. So going back to maybe like a little bit more of this philosophical question, um, at what point does photography for you reach over into art and how does one inform the other? Oh, wow. That's a very deep philosophical question. Uh, you know, I think about how I've thought about this a lot in terms of all of the imagery we have seen out there that I would sometimes classify more as digital art. And there's nothing wrong with digital art, but you know, at what point does an image become digital art versus a photograph? Um, and so that's a whole thing we debate on all day long or talk about. Um, but yeah, it, there are lots of similarities, of course. I mean, Monet inspires me, and so I'm you know creating my art, trying to paint with my camera uh, like a painter would, like Monet. So they do influence each other in a big way. Um, but uh, yeah, the, I think the line is starting to get a little more blurred between art and photography just because of all the apps and so forth that are out there for post-processing and things like that. Yeah. But there's nothing wrong with that, those lines blurring. It's just an observation that I've made. I think, mm -hmm. I think it's kind of natural in a way because, you know, a lot of people would maybe in the past think of like photography as being documentative, but like you're clearly doing something that's a lot more creative and abstract and it's just, it's, it's a whole different kind of like genre really of just, you know, photo taking really with it. Right, right. Yeah. And just being a kid again in a way, you know, not being afraid to experiment, play and seeing what you can get. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's yeah, I think, playful. I think that's awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so this this has been a great episode. So kind of wrapping up here, um, what are kind of the social media and you know your website and how can people you know find your work and your workshops and everything? Yeah, sure. So my website is charlesneedlephoto.com and it's N E D L E, no S on the end of needle. Uh, charlesneedlephoto.com and then I've got uh, Instagram presence, Facebook, um, and. I'm happy to answer questions over email as well. You know, I really help support people on their journey in photography, wherever they are, whether they're just beginning or super advanced and want to kind of take their work to the next level. Thank you so much for watching the Owl Outdoors Photography Podcast. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and the video version on YouTube as well. You can subscribe down below, and we look forward to seeing you in the next one. Thank you.